So, Jay, I was thinking about Adam X. Okay, but seriously, Miles, when are you not? Point, point. But here's the thing. His powers are awfully specific. I mean, making blood explode? Why not anything combustible? Okay, first of all, blood is cool, man. Like, ask Guitar Wolf. Anyway, Adam X isn't the only mutant with a blood-specific power. Oh, yeah? Yeah. For instance, there's a woman named Evangeline Whedon who, when exposed to blood... Gets kinda grossed out? ...turns into a dragon. WHAT?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 323 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to more X-Baby stuff, because, as you may recall, we were a little disappointed in the X-Baby story we did last episode, so we figured, hey, let's just read all of the X-Babies miniseries and one-shots that have ever been made after that, and do an episode about them. That's not entirely true. We are skipping the two most recent X-Baby things. Um, those are the, the Little Avengers versus Little X-Men books by Scotty Young. Wait a minute, weren't those in Battleworld, though, and so they're not technically the X-Babies? The miniseries was, the one-shot that came out as part of Avengers vs. X-Men was not. Oh, okay. Well, alright, well, we're skipping that one, but we're already covering the equivalent of eight issues worth of content in a show that normally does three, so I feel okay about that. We'll get there eventually. We will, and we should probably get here pretty quickly, because, like we just referenced, we have a lot to talk about. But first, let's get some backstory, in case everyone forgot what was up since last episode. Or is just tuning in now, because they're really just here for the coverage of the X-Babies and didn't want to, you know, deal with Joseph. I kind of like Joseph, but fair enough. It to each their own. So, here's what you need to know to follow these stories, and to understand the X-Babies in general. X-Babies are based in and around Mojo World. Mojo World is a dystopian dimension ruled by media, and that media is usually ruled by the large yellow robot spider-legged spineless, literally spineless, dictator Mojo. After getting great ratings by turning the X-Men we know and love into kids and filming them, along with having his servant Spiral replace Psylocke's eyes with live-streaming video cameras, Mojo became more and more dependent on our heroes. We could probably force an allegory to the evolution of the comics industry in America over the 20th century, but we're not going to do that right now. Nope. When the X-Men died in the fall of the mutants, Mojo was pretty distraught because, you know, they were his moneymakers. Until his staff decided to create childlike versions of the X-Men from Neoplasm. These were the X-Babies. You know, like the Muppets have Muppet Babies. You imply them that the Muppets like birth Muppet Babies. They don't. Uh, they, the the X-Babies are to the X-Men as the Muppet Babies are to the Muppets. Uh, yes, my analogy was unclear. It's been a while since the SATs. Anyway. They fled Mojo World for Earth a few times, uh, once seeking out then-Excalibur member Kitty Pride, later on, once again uh, returning to Earth to flee a new temporary ruler of their dimension whom they were worried wanted them dead. After that adventure, which we covered again last episode, the X-Babies were collectively kind of adopted by Dazzler, who at this point was an aristocrat in Mojo World as a result of her rebellion alongside Longshot. Everything was going to go great, right? I mean, entities created as fictional characters within a fictional world 
obsessed with narrative, uh, they would never have to deal with narrative conflict, right? Sure, Miles. Just keep on telling yourself that. So, we are going to be talking about three stories here. Two one-shots and a miniseries. The one-shots came out in 98 and 2000. The miniseries came out in 2009. And... I gotta say, I think they range from pretty decent to great. I think you like Murderama better than I do, but I think that they, they've all got strengths, and the ones that are good are good for really different reasons, which I really dig. Something else I love, and, and I'm really fascinated with in, in, in terms of what we're covering this episode, is that the two one-shots, which are, came out two years apart, are largely by the same creative team. They've got the same, the same penciler and the same writer. And... Watching the ways that creators work evolves over time is one of my favorite things about reading comics and reading comics over long runs. Very rarely do you get to see it in a format like this where you're seeing, you know, several year gap, but the same team working with the same characters in roughly the same format. And the difference in quality between the first X-Babies one-shot and the second one is really, really striking. The first one, I feel like, is, is okay. It gets, it gets a, a roughly, you know, it passes. I don't think it was a mistake to make from me. The second one is really good. I would agree, yeah. I mean, like you said, I think I'm a little sweeter on the first story than, than you are. That was some of the uh, faintest praise that one could damn a story with that I've ever heard just now. But yeah, the second is much, much better. So kudos to the writer and penciler for uh, evolving a great deal in two years. And that writer and penciler are respectively Ruben Diaz and Javon J. Kirby. Indeed. But boy howdy, we have a lot of anchors and colorists in that first one shot. So shall we start with pint-sized X-Babies number one, Murderama, from 1998? We should, and I should I should qualify here that the inkers are credited solely by sur surname um, in this comic. And we've put together the actual names of the ones we can, but there are a few that we, we couldn't place either because they were they were fairly common names. And we just we just couldn't dig them up specifically. If you happen to know those, let us know, and we will make sure that those credits go into the visual companion of the episode. So I already mentioned the writer and penciler. The inkers we've got here for uh, Murderama are Sean Parsons, Scott Koblish, Rich Parada, Dexter Vines, Rodney Ramos, somebody with the last name Russell, and somebody with the last name Williams. Our colorists are Jessica Ruffner, Paul Trone, somebody with the last name Hicks, somebody with the last name Scheigel, somebody with the last name Smith. And our letterers are Richard Starkings and Comicraft's David Lanfear. So the colorist uh, whose last name is Scheigel or Shigiel maybe, I'm not sure which, that is the last name of the writer of the miniseries. Same person? Who knows? It's a mystery. Hopefully, again, hopefully this is something that, that, that we'll, we'll have a listener say, oh yes, that, clearly, and, and let us know. But we were, we were unable to find it out with the research that we did. So, Margarama's kind of rough. I was not a fan. To me, it feels like a pretty okay Saturday morning cartoon from the 80s or early 90s. And honestly, I think that's part of why I liked it all right, because that makes sense. That's the world that Mojo has created for his ex-babies to inhabit. They kind of should feel like a Saturday morning cartoon. So there are aspects of it where I can see that, but it feels really tonally incohesive to me. It's not quite sure whether it wants to be a grown-up story or a kid's story. The character voices are really grating in the same ways that they were in, in X-Men 46 and 47. It's sort of riffing on, on giant-size X-Men number one and the all-new, all-different team. 
sort of, but again, it's not really cohesive or consistent. It does, however, open with precisely the mystique verse off-brand Smurfs gag we've all been waiting for. We knew it was coming. So, so these, these, these off-brand Smurfs are the Picks. They are a small purple hat-wearing people who live in giant vegetables and are being oppressed by the Brotherhood of Mutant Bullies. It's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to the X-Men's X-Babies. So who do we have on BOMB, or BOMB? Got Misty Q. Slob. Snaggletooth. Fyro. Toadpole. Juggernut. And Magneto, but spelled Mag N-E-A-T. Oh. I'm not sure if I am charmed or repulsed by how little some of those names are trying. Yeah, I love Magnetos because it really feels appropriate that it would be pronounced the same but spelled subtly differently. I kind of like Snaggletooth. Yeah, Snaggletooth's a pretty good one. The rest, eh. As for our heroes, they have different names as well. Now, we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but it's very consistent here. Okay, yeah, and these are the names these are names that are gonna stay consistent at least across these two one-shots. So our team of X Babies this time is again pretty much the all new, all different lineup. We've got Boyo, who's basically Banshee. That is a great name for little Banshee, and I love it so much. It's really cute. We have Psyche. Obviously. Colossus. Creepy Crawler. Shower. Who's Storm, and Wolvie. I'm a little torn on whether I like the cutesy names or not. They're fun, but they also, I think, bring us away from the X-Men parallels that make the X-Babies work, so I don't know. I think they would make more sense if they were off-brand in other ways. That's legit. Like, if, if they were clearly an attempt to, to create his own versions of the X-Men, but as cute babies, and, and so, you know, being, being the Robert Cops of the X-Men. I was just thinking about Robert Cop, or Special Man. Don't forget Special Man. I will never forget Special Man. So... Unfortunately for the X-Babies, one of the picks sells them out to Mojo. Uh, this member of the picks is despined as a reward for his service? Because remember, in the Mojo-verse, the spineless ones are the ruling class, so I guess ripping the spine out of a person is a way to give them some upward social mobility. I guess. Tangentially, I'm really sick of fat jokes around Mojo. It's sort of the equivalent of going after Ted Cruz for being socially awkward. There are so many other things. I agree, yeah. And I will say these stories at least do that less than some of Claremont's stories about Mojo. But uh, yeah, still too much. Still, i officially logging my, my dissent here. Now, Mojo is not in great shape right now. He has been relegated to public access, and he decides that that the way to get the X-Babies, to, to make them pay for their, their rebellion and also to get his ratings back up, is going to be to enlist the help of Arcade, who has come up with a novel new concept to keep the X-Babies out of the way. Wait a minute, though. Mojo's on public access? I mean, I've seen UHF. He should just hire Stanley Spadowski and his mop. He would do fine. Oh man, there are so many amazing things from public access. Yeah, MST3K started out there. Yeah, yeah. My favorite, favorite, all-time favorite public access show that I know of, though, is one I've never actually seen, but the T is to watch semi-regularly in New York, which is a show called Hell's Kitchen. And if you're familiar with, you know, the more recent official Food Network show with that name, you might be thinking something other than a vegan cooking show followed by a black mass, which is what this Hell's Kitchen was. Two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah, apparently it was like a really chill like walkthrough. You know, you can use goat's blood if you don't have goat's blood. You can use like grape juice. <laughs> <Like that. laughs> 
pretty good <laughs> cooking show. Um, I I really love that. <laughs> I, I really, really wish I could track down episodes. Fucking delightful. Well, what's a little less delightful is that Mojo sends his Centennials, which are basically Sentinels, who are actually giant robots designed to be part of the Enslavement Day parade in the Mojoverse. Anyway, they kidnap the X-Babies, in addition to trapping their boss, Charlie X, under rubble, crushing his legs? What did I say about Saturday Morning Cartoon? You see what I mean about it being kind of all over the place tonally? You are not wrong. So... Yeah, and it's they, they also don't really look like the X-Babies. They don't look like children. They look like smaller-than-usual, differently-styled cartoon adults. Like that thing we were talking about last episode with Baby Jesus as a 40-year-old man in certain old paintings. Well, or like Superhero Squad. I think that's the best actual superhero media analog I can think of. You know, you are not wrong. But as for Arcade's plot, it's a game show called Murderama. And the two sides are the X-Babies on one, and the Brotherhood of Mutant Bullies on the other. And Murderama basically consists of a series of clearly rigged trivia contests, which the X-Babies lose and then have to complete dangerous adventure challenges. So in that regard, essentially what we're seeing is a murder world story. And I think that's what made me decide that I kind of like this story. I stopped thinking of it as an X-Baby story and started thinking of it as more of a murder world story. And uh, those are fun. See, the thing is, it wasn't a very good murder world story to me. It didn't have clever death traps, and it just it wasn't nearly weird enough. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. I mean, we do see some fun stuff, like uh, Cyclops and Wolverine. I mean, shit, that, they really put the death and death trap with that one. Psych dies, or at least seems like he dies. To all appearances, and, and, and as far as he knows, and as far as Wolverine knows, and as far as the reader knows at this point, Cyclops decides that he is just going to sacrifice himself for the good of the team because he falls where they're, while they're jumping across these this series of spikes over an apparently bottomless pit. Wolverine catches him but can't pull him up and is clearly about to fall and Sykes basically just like, you, you gotta you gotta go on and finish this and let's go. Yeah, and you know, we see Colossus and Nightcrawler with their own challenge. We see Storm and Banshee with their own challenge. And there's also a brief cameo by a band called Monkey Wagon, which, after some research I've determined, uh, does appear to be an actual band. And um, I'll, I'll be at one currently on hiatus. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can get this analogy right. So Chris Claremont is to Cats Laughing as Ruben Diaz is to Monkey Wagon. How's that? Presumably they're friends of the writer? In theory. The thing is, I couldn't find enough information about Monkey Wagon to actually confirm that. Like, I don't know who's in it. Monkey Wagon, if you're listening... What's your deal? Let's hang out. You know, once people can hang out again. You have a marimba. We're into that. Yeah. I guess. Marimbas are fine. I don't think I'm really particularly into or not into marimbas. I'm kind of value neutral on them. To be honest, I don't know what a marimba is. I end like a xylophone. Oh. Well, those are cool. Anyway. Psyche, as we've implied, is not in fact dead, and he comes back for a last-minute save, just as the X-Babes are about to be killed by what really looks like Mr. Sinister. It's clearly supposed to be a creepy mummy version of Mr. Sinister, yeah. I'm not sure how Mojo came up with that. I guess he must be aware of Mr. Sinister. He's been monitoring Earth for a long time. Uh, I forgot, sorry, not Lockheed, Locksteed. His name is Locksteed in this because he's a large enough to ride dragon. Psyche has also shaken off his incredibly overwritten lisp, which he attributes to Wolvie teasing him about it all the time, which is a really bad message to give children. 
Yeah, don't emulate Wolverine, kids. Like, in any way. No, that's not actually a, a good way to accomplish that kind of thing. You are not doing people a favor when you do that. Well, Arcade and Mojo, realizing the jig is up, try to pressure the X-Babies into sticking around and being their media servants some more by threatening the Brotherhood of Mutant Babies. Specifically threatening to dissolve them back into Neoplasm. How, and the X-Babies the X are going to go for it, because you know, they're, they're heroes, they're small obnoxious heroes, but they're heroes. And fortunately for them, a recovered Charlie X shows up to the rescue with X-Baby versions of a whole shit ton of other X-Characters. He's got New Mutants, he's got Excalibur. It's really fun. I mean, the whole X-Baby concept I go back and forth on, but the fact that we are just seeing a who's who roster, although not the biggest one we'll see that we'll talk about in this episode, of cutesy versions of characters we love is really fun. And finally, you know, they, they head back to the, the X-Clubhouse, Wondering, you know, what are we going to do with all these X-Babies? Again, echoing the last line of Giant Size X-Men number one, where Angel asks what they're going to do with 13 X-Men. And as a reveal at the end, it turns out it wasn't really Arcade Mojo was working with. It was really Funhouse, who's like a kid version of Arcade, but he was wearing a rubber mask of the adult version of Arcade. Which somehow also made him taller. Masks can do a lot in comic book universes. I'm just saying they're very effective. In the Mojo world, I will actually buy that. But here's what's interesting about Funhouse. Chronologically and continuity-wise, it would make more sense for this story, for Murderama to come after Reborn, for reasons that we're going to get to in a little bit. Hell, let's get to that one shot right now. Let's talk about X-Babies Reborn number one. Beware the baby maker. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be going to get more iffy than it actually does, which is is a reversal I appreciate. Yeah. This once again is written by Ruben Diaz, penciled and colored by Javon J. Kirby, inked by Caleb Salstrom and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deschens. This cover makes me so happy because I managed to get this cover on a t-shirt off of the internet many, many years ago when it was a little bit harder to get things off the internet and proudly wore my ex-baby shirt freaking everywhere. Until Excuse it... me, you managed to? I recall someone else tracking that down on eBay and getting it for you as a birthday present in college. Oh, did you? Well, well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I'm You're sad welcome. that it <laughs> fell apart. Uh, yeah, it was a great t-shirt. I stole it pretty regularly, too. Yes, uh, but yes, the cover has the ex-babies who are all hanging from some kind of horizontal pole and freaking out, and then the baby Avengers below. The t-shirt just had the ex-baby part. It's very, very cute. Now, this is where you really see the difference that two years in a consistent inker can make, because ex-babies reborn is just exponentially better than Murderama, to the point where I'm genuinely kind of shocked at how much of the creative team overlaps. Like, this is a comic I would actually track down to give to a kid. I completely agree, yeah. Like, it works as a kid's comic tonally, but it's also deep and interesting enough to work as a comic for grown-ups. Like, it is legitimately all ages. It's a really, really solid story and a really character-driven story in a way that neither of the other two that we're looking at today really are. The art, though, first... Yeah, I mentioned the consistent inker and... I don't know how much of this is is Salstrom and how much of it is Kirby, but the kids really look like kids in this one. 
The art's also much more intricate and textured, which is not what I would think would be the direction to go for something like this, but it works very, very well. I completely agree. Like, I know there were a couple of panels in particular that you and I were, were discussing that are just genuinely excellent comic book panels. Yeah, the facial expressions are much, much better, too. And again, some of that has to be time. Some of it is that we're, we're working with a very, very different ink style, and we're working with one inker, so it's an inker who can really work in their own distinctive style rather than having to do something that'll look consistent with 12 other inkers. Well, it's not just the creative team who has evolved, because the X-Babies lineup appears to be pulled from a bit later in X-Men history. Not quite the Outback era, but a little bit before, both in terms of lineup and in terms of, in some cases, outfits. Right. This time we've got Psyche, Colossus, Creepy Crawler, Shower, Wolvie, Charlie X, Psy Child, who is Psylocke basic form, Shadow Kitty, guess who, and Suga, who's Rogue. P.S. Suga is the best character across all the X babies always and forever in any story she appears in and possibly the ones that she doesn't appear in. She's amazing. She is so well written in this. She reads really all of these kids read like cartoonified kid versions of their X-Men antecedents in ways that work beautifully and make them feel much more fleshed out and much more relatable than they do when they're just basically cartoon kid caricatures. Completely. So we're starting off with X-Men standby, which is the Danger Room opening. Here, it's the Danger Playpen opening, but it's basically the same deal. Like, it's got the same death traps. This is not a kid-friendly room. There's some mention made of the fact that, you know, the big bludgeons are padded and the blades aren't too sharp, because later, of course, the danger room gets out of control and does become dangerous. But still! Still! Still. Um, and, and it doesn't prevent a terrible accident from happening. Suga doesn't realize that one of her gloves is torn, and she slams into Psychild, and the resultant feedback loop knocks Psychild out. And not too long after that, her physical form starts to deteriorate. This is, you know, you mentioned Suga as kind of the best character in this, and I think one of the things this story just captures brilliantly is the horrible, horrible, horrible feeling of being a fairly young kid who accidentally hurts another kid. Absolutely, and we see Suga so remorseful throughout this entire story, and she's the one who's responsible for making sure that the gradually deteriorating Psy child is as safe as she can be, and carries like the big tank that she's put in around and safeguards it. And this is very specifically a nobody's fault accident. Like this isn't the equivalent of the stuff with Bobby DaCosta before he runs off to to join um, Fallen Angels. This is this is the equivalent of. Two kids who are too into the game run smack into each other on a playground, and one of them is hurt a lot worse. Exactly. So the kids figure, well, crap, we need to do something to save Psychild. She's deteriorating into neoplasm, the stuff we're all made of. First, they put her in a really cute jar held by a giant robot teddy bear. This is the point, too, where I started noticing that when they're being slightly simplified, Psychild's structure, she's breaking down, but also a lot of times the other characters when there are big crowd scenes the art style reminds me a tiny bit of meredith mclaren's and then i started thinking about the fact that as far as i know marvel has never approached meredith mclaren about doing an ex-baby story and then i got really mad and had to sit and breathe deeply for a few minutes i'm just saying we're in the reign of x era right now it seems like they're announcing a new x-men book just about every week there's room for this what do you say true. marvel it's true but yeah and I, i'm gonna link to to meredith's website um in the visual companion because once you see you will understand so the only p potential solution they've got is 
to take Psychild back to Mojo World, to Longshot and Dazzler, to see if they can help fix her. Because Longshot and Dazzler are still big deals in Mojo World. And they've got access to more technology than Charlie X has at the clubhouse, which is also how we learn that the clubhouse is technically outside of Mojo World. So they head off with Sugar carefully carrying Psychild's jar. They figure, you know, they can they can they can find out what's going on. If need be, they can just replace her neoplasm because they've 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 got all of all of her data still. Unfortunately for them, there's only a little neoplasm left in Mojo World, and Mojo already has plans for it. But meanwhile, the babies go on a journey that reminds me a ton of an Oz book. And this is where I really love this issue. I love that we don't exactly get a sense of the geography of Mojo World, but we do get a sense of kind of the conceptual layout of it, and specifically the parts of Mojo World that it would make sense for the ex-babies themselves to traverse. You know what it reminds me of in terms of that conceptual geography? What's that? The Wild Ways New Mutants Annual. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's a really good parallel. You're totally right. Doubly connected, because this this issue also firmly situates the wild ways relative to the mojo world so so some of some of the the towns and sort of small countries and edged fiefdoms of mojo world they move through include bubble field which has a barn full of inflatable animals marshmallow marsh the petrified sock puppet forest gamesboro where everything functions by board game rules and that's the last stop on their trip because there they barely manage to keep spiral from getting sci child before they get to Longshot and dazzler's headquarters which is a cool old theater uh, light and Luck, I believe, or is it Luck and Light? Either way. One of those. It's staffed um, by Minor Domo, who you may recall from other, other Mojo World stories, who has apparently gone over to the side of good, which is cool, because I've always liked her. Turns out Longshot is away on a soul journey or something. Dazzler herself is there with a bunch of women who are largely former victims from slasher and disaster movies who are now revolutionaries, which is an arc that makes a great deal of sense to me. I love the tiny glimpses this issue gives us into the larger world, both both Mojo World and sort of the surrounding areas. Because this is, it, it, it does, again, it's, it's got that Ozbook feel of moving through all of these very sort of conceptual kind of silly places, but that also clearly have like rich culture and life that we're just seeing the edge of. Reminds me a little of the Phantom Tollbooth in that regard, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... Another thing that, you know, that we've got in common with Wizard of Oz is the, the quest to find a specific person who, turns out, can't help. Dazzler sends our kids to the Textbook Sisters. These are our three sisters who hide relics of knowledge in a derelict library long abandoned because nobody on Mojo World cares about print media. And here is a bit of narration that is both a great Mojo World concept and also contradicts continuity. The last papers hailed the meteoric career of a thin young director named Mojo. Before the evening editions hit, he became bigger than the news. I love the idea that it was the rise of Mojo's style of media that basically rendered books obsolete immediately. But I will say, and this goes back to the weight thing, Mojo was always about his usual size. He was a spineless one long before he took over Mojo World, so that doesn't quite line up. Before we can learn any more history, though, and before the sisters can work their magic... They are interrupted by the other set of characters we saw on the cover, and these are the Vengers. They're great. Who do we have on the Vengers? We've got Captain Americid, Iron Ace, Hockey, Thundersun, Big Boy. Okay, I don't know if I like Big Boy for Giant Man or Boyo for Banshee better, but I like them both. And Wisp. Their battle cry is Vengers Assembly. It's very Aww. cute. 
they've been pretty much brainwashed slash convinced by Mojo to believe that they're in the right and that, you know, they need to uphold the status quo against these law-breaking weirdos, the mutants. It is a fairly good metaphor for the ways that the Avengers get written relative to the X-Men when they're being written in particularly ham-handed ways. As Captain America says, You X-babies don't realize how good you'd be treated if you played by Mojo's rules. And I... I, so one of the things I dig about the Avengers is, is, is a layer of meta in here, which is that they are not only kid versions of the Avengers, they are kid versions of a very specific, very simplistic read on the Avengers. Exactly, yeah. And that's part of why they work and part of why it's fun when they start to subvert that. Yeah. So Iron Ace is, on, is also on a direct mission from Mojo, and Suga follows him back just in time to see a pretty interesting exchange that, that gives her the impression that maybe there's more to the Avengers than the ex-babies have given them credit for. As Mojo welcomes Iron Ace back. Ah! Welcome home, my ill-conceived creation! I am absolutely drunk with delight! Did I do well, sir? Well, I shouldn't have had to remind you of your duties back there. Sir, why are you so happy making the ex-babies miserable? You said they were a bad batch, a big mistake. Still, you never stop plotting against them. What about us? Don't the Avengers make you proud? Are you back-talking me, mister? No, no, sir. I only wanted to understand why you made us different. Because I am Mojo, your creator, and that explanation must suffice. You will obey me because I rule here! And while you live under my thumb, you do as I command! But, sir, what if you instruct us to do something wrong? Mojo's about to slap Iron Ace down. When Suga and Shadow Kitty intervene. Because Suga has realized that the problem isn't just that Psy Child's in trouble, it's that Mojo is a horrible despot and part of a huge broken system, and she's gonna take it down. Don't you dare lay a hand on him! Y'all use them kids, Mojo, and abuse our popularity! Like you took advantage of every man, lady, boy, or girl in your company! It's over, Mojo! Shadow Kitty adorably sums up. Yuck! You a nasty man! Can we just take a moment to appreciate how almost overwhelmingly adorable the even younger than the rest of the X-Babies Shadow Kitty is? Yeah, it's, it's appalling. Nothing, no, no character should ever be allowed to be that cute. Mojo tries to send Iron Ace after the girls, but Iron Ace turns on Mojo instead. And because he's a baby Iron Man, once Mojo is out of the way temporarily, he's able to hack the Neoplasm setup, hopefully to help revive Psylocke Except it turns out it's too late. Mojo has already programmed it with monsters and villains and the code they're able to feed in for Psylocke, what's supposed to be, you know, the entirety of her personality and her description is lost in that mix. Thankfully, we get a much better version of an existing story from the main 616. Right. It's much, much less problematic when our original Psylocke's mind reemerges in for at least for her, a new body at this point. Yeah, it's like a ninja lady body from from the main universe. It's Quanon. Except presumably not, you know, stolen from another person whose body it was. Exactly. 
Mojo manages to scramble down from where he's been thrown. He turns on the now united X-Babies and Vengers, but Shadow Kitty has been hidden in his massive me mechanical gun, causing it to misfire, um, which takes him out of the picture. The Avengers decide that they're going to go independent, they're going to be good guys, and they're going to help teach, you know, kids without inherent superpowers everywhere that they can be heroes too. So the X-Babies set them up in an abandoned school near the library that they can then use as headquarters. Mojo's not done yet, though, because he still has those new creations you were alluding to, Jay. He has his own baby versions of a shit ton of X-Villains. Cannot describe how intensely I want to write the adventures of Baby Doom. That would be amazing. Alas, Baby Doom does not show up in the next X-Baby story, that being the X-Baby's miniseries from 2009 and 2010, called, confusingly enough, Stars Reborn. Now, all four of these issues have the same creative team, which is delightful, so we'll just go through their, their titles real quick. We have Someone's Been Sleeping in Our Bed, Amidst the Stars, Chase Fight Snicked, and All Ages Revolution. Those creators are... Greg Shagiel, the writer and maybe the colorist from one of those one-shots. Art is done by Jacob Chabot, colors by Emily Warren, letters by Rob Steen, and uh, yeah, that consistency really, really helps. Now, you mentioned the somewhat peculiar title, and the title is the first clue we have that this isn't just an X-Babies miniseries. This also involves some other Marvel Kids properties. Indeed, it does. We'll get to that momentarily, and I'm very excited. So, if the one-shots feel, at least the first one, like a Saturday morning cartoon, this mini feels very much like a Mojo World story. Almost more than an X-Baby story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although, interestingly enough, Mojo's not in charge this time. He's in it, but he's been captured by this unnaturally spindly, Natalie-attired mustache man named Mr. Veach, and Mr. Veach's assistant Nandy, who looks kind of like Honey from Doonesbury, but with TV screens on her glasses. Oh god, you saw that too. She looked just I I that's in my notes that she looks like honey and she, she acts like honey. We have many of the same cultural frames of reference. Mr. Veach's name is clearly a reference to the Veachip. Do you know what Nandy's is? I don't. Was there some kind of a parents council that had an Anna that had a, a an abbreviation that sounded like that? I don't remember. I'm sure one of our listeners will tell us. Assuming that it is a reference to something, which it probably is. I mean, this is the Mojo world. Yeah, but that makes sense. The V-chip, of course, was something that was put in TVs to to oversimplify to censor content, and that's kind of what Veach wants to do, but we'll get to that. As for the X-Babies themselves, they've been adventuring since the last miniseries. They're currently in the Savage Playland, fighting dinos. The team doesn't have cutesy names, and it's also, once again, a uh, somewhat different lineup. This is sort of one of the more classic Claremont lineups. We have Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Rogue, and Kitty. Their outfits are mostly the 80s version, but Storm's in a less skimpy mid-2000s version of her outfit. I should have mentioned, by the way, that Storm in the last one was Punk Storm, and it was great, and that's a really good look for a kid. It totally is, yeah. Children, if you're listening to this, A, don't use the words that we use, and B, dress like Storm. You can use some of the words we use. Be selective. Uh, yes, yes. Ask an adult you trust. The kids' personalities are definitely more distinct from the first one-shot, maybe not as distinct as in the second one-shot, but we have Dower Cyclops, Angry Jerk Wolverine, Straightforward Colossus, Firecracker Rogue, like these are clearly kid versions of the characters we know and love. And they're also kid versions who are well aware that they're the Mojoverse's biggest stars. They're commenting on how it's weird that they haven't seen ratings for a while and they haven't really seen any cameras around, that's kind of funky. So, what's going on then? 
As they find out, when Kitty accidentally phases through a rock in the Savage Playland, they're not in the Savage Playland at all. In fact, they're in some big high-tech structure of some sort, complete with monitors showing them a bunch of old Star Comics characters, along with an empty room with a hole in the wall where they just were. Okay, wait a minute. This is a Marvel book. What's Star Comics? I'm so glad you asked, almost as if we planned it. My god. Star Comics was Marvel's kids' imprint from 1984 to 1988. They published comics based on some existing characters like the Muppets, the Ewoks, Heathcliff, who you may know as... No, not Garfield, the other one. There were also new characters, though, like Spider-Ham, if you've seen it into the Spider-Verse, you're familiar with him, Planet Terry, Wally the Wizard, Royal Roy, Top Dog... And of those, Spider-Ham is really the only one who's stuck around. Uh, pretty much, yeah. If you've read any Harvey comics, like Richie Rich and stuff, uh, Star Comics feels very, very similar to them. And it turns out that's no accident. Marvel almost had the deal to publish Harvey's characters, and the new Star characters they created, like Planet Terry, they were going to be part of this big push. The deal fell through at the last minute, and in fact, the next interaction between Harvey and Marvel was a lawsuit as Harvey sued Marvel over their character Royal Roy from Star being too similar to Richie Rich, which, I mean, fair enough. One of the things I really like about the name of that other comics publisher is that it's just a first name. So you see, in the next interaction between Harvey and Marvel, you're just picturing some dude. Yeah, that's Harvey over there. He's really pissed at us, and he's got lawyers. He's large and angry. I think he has overalls in my imagination. I don't know why. Listeners, is your name Harvey? Do you wear overalls? Good for you. Another screen that the ex-babies see are versions of themselves. Sort of. These are cutesier versions of them. They're babies instead of kids. These are the adorable ex-babies. Interestingly, visually, these ex-babies are much, much more clearly modeled on the Muppet babies than the normal ex-babies are. They absolutely are. And the art is great. There's like this shiny pastel almost filter over the adorable ex-babies. And what we and the regular ex-babies see are an episode of adorable ex-babies where they're talking about how great fresh vegetables are. It keeps cutting back and forth between that and our ex-babies looking increasingly horrified. Yeah, because the proper ex-babies are really just kind of all about wanton violence. As, as, as tiny Wolverine objects. Someone's been sleeping in our bed. Except all they got just right is that Cyclops is a dink. Man, the X-Babies books are so mean to Cyclops. Well, Wolverine especially. Yeah. Thanks to Storm's claustrophobia, which I gotta say, Shabbat does a great job doing this half-realistic, half-exaggerated kid face emotion, Storm blasts a hole out of one of the elevator shafts they get trapped in, and they realize they're not in the Savage Playland, they're not in some kind of underground base, they've been in an airship this whole time. What? So is Spiral, who has betrayed Mojo to work for her new employer, Mr. Veach, to get rid of the kids. And in fact, she manages to beat them all and throw them in a portal. Interestingly, Spiral is the only clearly human-looking and human-proportioned character in the entire series. I don't know what's up with Veach and Nanda. They look way more exaggerated than her. I love that your version of human-looking allows for extra arms. I mean, this is the Marvel Universe, let's be real. Valid. The kids wake up on the moon, facing off against a bunch of colorful pastel aliens, led by Planet Terry, the young space explorer character from the Star comic with his own name. And before we continue with their encounter, I should mention that each of these issues is actually a fair bit of bang for your buck. It each contains a backup story. 
The first contains I Want My X-Men, the backup story from Uncanny Annual Number 12, where the X-Babies were first created. The second issue is Planetary Number 1. The third issue is Top Dog Number 1. The fourth issue is Wally the Wizard Number 1. And I really enjoyed reading those old kids' comics. And these are all on Marvel Unlimited as well, if they think that you're interested in looking up. Yes, they are indeed. Every issue we're talking about today is. Hey! So Planet Terry starts singing and dancing, narrating what's going on. The X-Babies are just confused. Also, Cyclops is mad because a feared, a word in one of the songs, is not a proper word. I mean, it's an archaic usage, but... Eh, Cyclops doesn't know that. He's a kid. Planetary and the aliens are the same kind of sort of watered-down, softly-inked pastel as the adorable X-Babies are. And that's also kind of how they behave in a watered-down fashion. Planetary zaps most of the X-Babies with his fun gun, and the mutants start dancing with little speech bubbles going from one character to another. Rap, rap! Dance, dance! Clap, clap! Sing, sing! And, of course, Colossus is doing Russian kick dancing. Jay, do you remember that one Street Fighter 2 ending, if you beat the game with Zangief, where he and Gorbachev do Russian kick dancing at the end and laugh a lot? Vividly. Yeah. Street Fighter was weird, and I don't know about its handling of culture and race, but it was still a lot of fun. Its handling of culture and race were very bad. I think T-Hawk was probably the worst example of that, at least that I can think of right now. There were a lot of really, really bad examples of that. However, there are, there aren't examples that would get past Veach, um, who is, is concerned about keeping all of his programming wholesome. Fortunately for the X-Babies, at least, that means that they can break the spell of the fun gun just with, with some carefully applied punching. Indeed they can, and they steal a nearby spaceship and escape. Kid Nightcrawler is the pilot, of course, because like his adult self, everybody forgets he's an excellent pilot and good with machines and also good with medical stuff. Planetary and the aliens briefly chase them, but then return undeterred to their dance party. There's only space in sight until the ship crashes through the wall of Mojo Studios, because as it turns out, Planetary was likewise a soundstage. A soundstage within a soundstage, like a dream within a dream. Again, this is very much a Mojo World story. So this introduces us to the Veach version, at least, of another Star Comics character. Wally the Wizard, along with his mentor, Marlin. Not Merlin, Marlin. That's a plot point. Mark Trail has punched at least two distinct men named Marlin. Well done, Mark Trail. I'm not well, sure if this is one of them. Like Planet Terry, this incarnation of Wally the Wizard and Marlin are way more childlike. In fact, Wally's very reminiscent of Sherman from Bull the Bullwinkle Hours, Mr. Peabody, and Sherman. As Marlin asks him, Looks like a problem, wouldn't you say, Wally? I sure would, wizard, but a problem is only a reason to discover a solution. And how might we do that? Why, with the magic of science and the science of magic, of course. I mean, okay, I would watch that show. Same. It's got Flight of Dragons vibes. A little bit, but, you know, way cutesier. The X-Babies have no patience for this long, drawn-out, heavily narrated process. They just wander off as Rogue calls Wally and the Wizard nerds. I, I really love Rogue so much as just this terrible little jock. Which again differentiates her from the Rogue in the one-shots. Just like Planetary, though, these two suddenly get aggressive. They build this alphabet-obsessed giant golem, the Alphabot. Fortunately, it's got weak points. Specifically, it's got giant X's on its body, which the X-Men target 
and effectively take it down via one of Wolverine and Colossus's dodgeball specials. I love the kid equivalents of all the standard X-Men stuff. It's really fun. Agreed. During the fight, however, Marlin and Wally have snuck away. Fortunately, Wolverine's got their scent, but before he can get to them, there's another Star Comics character waiting. It's Royal Roy, the one who's basically Richie Rich. Remember that lawsuit? And Roy's eight money-related puns in a row are no match for Wolverine just threatening to gut him. He runs away along with his allies, and another star character shows up. This is Top Dog, a super smart dog who is here to help. He's the best at what he does, which it turns out is, unlike Wolverine, a lot of things. Anything! Baseball, spelling, candy-eating, archery, computers, painting, baking, hockey! But I heard something about a mystery, and I'm tops at solving mysteries! The X-Babies are just getting increasingly baffled by all of this. I love it. Fortunately, this, this Bodlerized character is actually helpful. He makes them a GPS that will help them find anything. And it leads them to a Mario-esque sewer pipe inside a factory. This is such Mojoverse logic, the layout of everything around here. It only makes sense in a point A to point B story. Like, it would make no sense for anybody to live in a world like this. Right, it's, it's there for the, the viewing, for the pleasure of viewers, and its, its organization is sound stages and also fun cartoon sequences, as Rogue recognizes when she sees a camera bot following them. You watching us in there? You following us around and having a good old time? Well, we get to find you, scrumps, and when we do, you'll get a right smackdown. Worse than we ever gave Mojo or anyone else. You think a bunch of dancing aliens and rich snobs and mangy dogs are going to keep us from bringing y'all a beating? We'll learn you right for all of this nonsense. Y'all are deader meat in a ham and egg biscuit. We're gonna tan your hide like. Thank you, Rogue. But before she can continue her analogy, Kitty short circuits the bot, which the X-Babies then follow to the bad guys. And the bad guys are in this gigantic, bizarre, technology-covered tower topped with TV screens with Mojo's face. It's kind of like if Times Square and the tower with Sauron's burning eye on top had a baby. Bot. I mean, yeah, with all the, the fire and the electricity. Also, there are more airships, presumably with more captives like the X-Babies were. Right, the non-Bootlerized versions of those Star Comics characters. So, we need to split the team up into two. They're going to split the party going against all D&D advice. Okay, so we've got the stealth team, and that's going to rescue the original versions of the Star Comics characters. We've got Wally, Planetary, Roy, Top Dog so forth. Wolverine and Nightcrawler are going to take care of that. Rogue wants to go too, but Wolverine reminds her that the other team needs somebody who can kick butt. I love their dynamic, and once again, I love Rogue. Now, the team that goes after Veach, it turns out, needs all the heavy hitters they can get, because Veach is prepared, and he's got the adorable X-Babies with him. He sicks them on the standard X-Babies. Thankfully, Wolverine and Nightcrawler have taken this time to rescue those Star Comics characters, who, interestingly enough, are far more realistic than even the original Star Comics incarnations. It's almost like the Star Comics incarnations are in the middle of the adorable version and these versions. And Wolverine, even though his claws are short and a little bit cute, cuts all of the adorable X-Babies into nothing. They've been invincible when the other X-Men have fought them, the other X-Babies have fought them, but claws apparently are the magic ingredient. They are now big piles of paste. 
Veach ain't done yet, though. He's able to turn that Chicken McNugget-like pink slime into adorable versions of so many mutants. Dear God, Jay, there are so many of them. It's everyone from Maggot to Zorn to Madrox to Pixie to the cutest Dark Phoenix ever. There are so many. The one that really impresses me is Albert. There is Albert, yeah? But I don't know, I mean, Stacy X is there? She has mutant sex powers. Well, she has mutant pheromone powers, which are presumably much more widely applicable than sex. That's just how she mostly uses them. Yeah, but everybody remembers her as having mutant sex powers, I'm just saying. Yeah, but again, that's the adult version. That's fair. But we have all of these adorable animalistic characters, from X-23 to Kylan to Dokken to Thorn with Two Ends, teaming up against Top Dog... And all the while, we have adorable Deadpool, the Merc with manners, sneaking around, politely giving everyone etiquette tips. It's great. We have the adorable versions of the Ecstatics surrounding Colossus and Royal Roy, the adorable Generation X fighting Storm, Wolverine, Kitty, and Wally. Adorable Iceman and Sunfire are teaching the heroes about opposites. And like you mentioned, Kitty goes up against the robot characters, which include adorable Warlock, Albert, Danger, Widget, Karima, Box. There are so many characters, and that's basically what most of this last issue is. It's just a roll call of every goddamn X-Men character you can think of, but done aggressively cutesily. It's got so many crowd scenes, and there are so many characters, and I'm so impressed with Jacob Chabot. Veach didn't want it to go this way. He likes to keep things peaceful and orderly, but... It troubles me to see all our work come to this, a physical melee. But it's the only language they understand. I always knew I'd win in the end. I built the better babies. That's a sentence you don't hear very often. But then the X-Babies and the Star Comics characters attack as one, distracting the baddies for long enough for Rogue to absorb Spiral's powers, growing more arms, which is awesome, and she uses those powers to teleport all the bad guys away into parts unknown. Which is horrifying, because it means that the adorable X-Babies are still out there somewhere. They're pretty much unkillable. Do you think that those brood clone X-Men from that One New Mutants issue might run into them and havoc will ensue? Like, havoc with a C, not a K? I don't know. I feel like they're likely to end up in sort of different directions of weird history. That may be true. You know, I might read that miniseries also. I mean, as it is, the most recent version of Exiles did have a character who was essentially adorable Wolvie from this miniseries. Yeah, yeah. Rogue is able to use those powers as well to send the star characters to... I guess what is their real, much less cartoony, not on sound stages home dimensions? And based on the references made by the other characters, once the star characters go, quote, home, I think these places are in the actual Marvel Universe. There are references to the Kree, to Wakanda, to Latveria. So I think that may mean that Royal Roy, Top Dog, Planet Terry, and Wally the Wizard are all running around in Earth 616 somewhere. Of course they are. And that's it. The good guys win. The X-Babies are now in charge of Mojo World. I mean, you know, they rescued Mojo, but they want to take over for a while. But eventually, just sitting around, watching all the channels of the Mojoverse like so many Saturday morning cartoons gets boring. So off they teleport to Parts Unknown. Which is to say guest appearance in Spider-Man and the X-Men and Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur years later in addition to the Avengers vs. X-Babies stories that you were talking about, Jay. And that wraps up our All X-Babies episode. 
that wraps it up for the X-Babies. Fortunately, they're pretty self-explanatory, or at least to, to what extent an X-concept can be, which means that we've got time for a few of your questions. Michael asks via email, I was recently re-listening to the first Giant Size special, wow, that was a long time ago, and your then-producer Bobby asked you to pick an era of X-Men that you were least excited about covering. Miles' response was, well, it was the era you're in now, between the Age of Apocalypse and the Grant Morrison run. So how does it feel to be explaining what Miles called the fallow period? Has your opinion changed? Is that what I called it? Huh, okay. Man, I don't know. I mean, I would say... I would say it has changed. I've definitely found a lot of elements that I really like in this era. Lobdell does really good character work a lot of the time. Um, Excalibur and Generation X are legitimately great. X-Force and X-Factor have interesting new directions. I'm not sure that I'm going to like where they go, but they're interesting to read for now. Honestly, though, I've only read some of this era. This is probably the era that I've read the least of, so a lot of it is new to me, and I'm really trying to have an open mind. And at the moment, I don't know, I guess I would rank it somewhere along with the early 90s. Not always my thing, but there are a ton of fun elements amid the parts that I don't connect with, and I really enjoy focusing on those those elements. Yeah, if I had to choose a single word to describe this era, it would be inconsistent. Unfortunately, that means there's a lot of bad stuff, but it also means there's a lot of really good stuff hidden in there as well. That said, I mean, we've mentioned it a billion times. We're coming up on Onslaught. That's a story that the first time I read it, the first and only time I read it, I, I was not a fan of. But I will say that often when I read comics specifically for the show, rather than just reading them casually, as I did with Onslaught, I find much more to like. So I'm hoping that's going to be the case. I'm not going to lie about it if it's not, but... Onslaught fans, I know there are a lot of you out there, more power to you. I'm going to do my damnedest to join your ranks. Oh man, I, I just read the, the Doctor Doom X-Men annual where Doom travels through time trying to understand what the hell was going on with Onslaught, <laughs> and uh, it does not leave me hopeful. Uh, do you think he has any advice for us? No. I mean, yes, but not related to this. Oh, just probably about what to do with that fool, Richards? Yeah, pretty much. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, is there any chance that WandaVision could be part of Mojo World? Not going to go into detail because I don't want to spoil anything, but what I will say is it seems exceptionally unlikely. That said, I do appreciate in WandaVision, well, I appreciate a lot of things, it's great, but I appreciate how much the show is mixing and matching and deviating from the source material, which seem to be a handful of specific stories, I think. It keeps us guessing in a way that I haven't really uh, enjoyed quite as much since Legion. It's worth plugging, by the way, if you're following WandaVision or if you want detailed analysis of the episodes, our friends Max and Tina Carlton are doing a recap and analysis podcast where they go into a lot of depth on each episode and both its comics and its TV antecedents because the two of them collectively, I would say, know more about television than any other two people I've ever met. And also, Scarlet Witch is kind of... We've had Max on the podcast, in fact, to explain Scarlet Witch to us in cold opens because he knows more about the... the um, about Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver than, again, pretty much anyone else I've ever met. They're also a lot of fun to listen to, and if you want a really good, really deep dive on that show, highly, highly recommend looking that up. Yeah, we'll link to that in the As Mentioned for this episode. Meanwhile, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from fictional characters and concepts. And this week, the mic, of course, goes to Mojo. 
Major Domo! Our last show's killed! Killed! And we're back on the networks, baby! Back in the spotlight! Back in the retinas of most of Mojo World! In some cases, literally! Because violence! But this audience, so fickle, so unpredictable, and they die so easily. Now, find me a better audience! Find me the best! Find me the fans of... What in the Mojo-verse is Jay and Miles explained the X-Men? Okay, bring me their fans! All of them! What do you mean, Spiral quit and we can't go to Earth? Fine, who cares? We'll make our own Jay and Miles audience. Dial in the Neoplasm. Builds me Baby Adam Kennedy and Lil Rebecca Tex Smith. They'll be just as loyal and irresistibly cute. Unless... Ah! Tex! Adam! Why? Major Domo, they know me and... They're attacking me! How do they know me? And how are they just as tough as they are adorable? They're sharp and pokey! Why are they sharp and pokey? Run! Leave the studio to them! And Major Domo, you're fired! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come... Oh, God, my voice is wrecked from being mojo. Same from doing, like, the high-pitched kid voices. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but anyway, new episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, but not like the way things are on the air in the Mojoverse, because that's weird, and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're working our way back to the usual lineup of grown-up heroes. By way of Generation X. Thank <laughs> you.